Anyone have any Christmas traditions that are already in high gear? No one? Okay. We're waiting? Okay, I saw a couple hands. That's good. Uh, we're, our house is in the middle of one right now. If you came in and went up the stairs to our dining table, you would see that there is a puzzle and pieces scattered all across the table. Puzzles are sort of one of these regular traditions that occur in our house around Christmas time. Anyone else puzzle at Christmas time? Yeah, a whole bunch. Like, I don't know where this came from. I think it's so you could escape family conversation at different moments, but it also gives you something to do together, so it's like an apart and together sort of thing. Uh, but this is sort of what ends up happening. In fact, if you sit in the wrong spot at Christmas dinner, chances are your plate is sloped because it's going to be on a whole bunch of pieces when uh, the tablecloth goes over. But it's a, a really fun thing that we do together. And, and actually what ends up happening is sort of everyone sort of has their part they do. Right? Like there's the person who will find one of the like focal points and they'll start to piece that together. Someone else really likes distinguishing all the colors and sorting them out into different pieces. For me, I'm the like edge guy. Like putting the edge together, I like that it comes to a completion at a certain point. It's easy to be able to figure out what's what because I can't always tell all the colors apart super well. And then what I really like about it is it gives you a place to start building off of. I don't like the free-flowing bits in the middle because they give me a little bit of anxiety that they're not quite in place. And so I like to have that frame and then be able to connect everything together. Well, today what we're talking about is a little bit of the same sort of thing, the frame that gives us an ability to look in at what the picture really should be. As we've been going through our Advent series, we've been looking at different stories of individuals that God has used through history in order to point towards the center of what we celebrate about Christmas, right? And that's really what it's all about. If you look at a puzzle, what are you drawn to? The center. Because usually it's at the center that the puzzle maker puts the most significant part of the visual. And so in the same way, what we see when we read scripture is there's this beginning part that leads us towards the center, and there's the second part that leads us from the center forward to today and eventually our future, but at the center, of course, is Jesus. But today we're going to look at a piece that's really close to the center and see how that points us in towards Jesus. So over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Isaac, we've looked at Moses. Today, what we're doing is going into the New Testament and looking at a guy named John the Baptist. If you've got a Bible, come with me to Luke chapter 1. And there, where we're, we're going to read a little bit about both the, uh, the, the foretelling of John's birth, some things that happen ahead of him being born, and then some things that come out after him, which end up telling us about that centerpiece of Jesus at Christmas, which is really the focal point of God's whole redemptive plan for humanity through all of history. In fact, it is something that the Jewish people waited for for so long because even 400 years before Jesus arrived, there was foretelling of what was to come. And one of those 
things, one of those prophecies which we read about, is even a prophecy about this guy, John the Baptist, or as I call him often, J the B. So it says this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so we see that there's this word spoken, that there's someone going to come before Jesus, and then the fullness of God's glory in Jesus will come after And we'll read in a little while after we come out of Luke, an account in Matthew, which will reveal how that all came to pass. But let's start first with John and what happens with him. So in Luke chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 11. We're going to read down to verse 17, then we're going to skip down a bit to verse 39. All right, so we have this in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that's what happens before John is conceived. And then let's flip over to verse 39 and read an account of what happens with John in his mother's womb. So Mary, who we know, Jesus' mom, is here at the beginning. And it says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and was greeted by Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb has leaped for joy. So blessed is she who would believe that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. So we have this interesting account where we start to see that pieces are falling in place. As I said, we've been journeying through Advent and looking at how there's these different people that God used through history to foreshadow what he would do with Jesus. And sometimes it's a a bit of a, a stretch, right? Like we did Moses last week and sometimes you'll go to a church that'll use especially if it's a liturgical church, and they'll use Moses uh, as a connection for Jesus at Advent. But before that, we looked at Isaac, and we had to look a little bit harder about how God used Isaac to foreshadow Jesus. But here, it's gotten easier. 
I mean, it helps that the two, take, the two stories take place in the, the same book of the Bible. They're back to back as we read through this. But we see that even here, there's some foreshadowing of what God wants to do. And he's foreshadowed that through his prophecy and then through a number of connections between the two men. And they're pretty easy to spot. First of all, there's some family connections. As we've gone through this, all, we've noticed that all these people have some type of relation to one another. But in this case, it's really easy to spot the relationship because we got literal family getting together when the two women are pregnant. They want to share and get excited about this. And both of those families trace back in their lineage to a guy named Aaron from the Old Testament, who was the brother of Moses, who happened to be the first priest of Israel. And so there's this direct family connection we see. We see that there's also an angelic announcement of their conception and delivery. We know, of course, what we celebrate at Christmas time often is the angelic visitation of the angel to Mary and how angels visit Joseph and how angels visit shepherds and tell all sorts of people about the coming of Jesus. Well, here we have John's dad, a high priest, who's waiting and waiting for a child, for his wife to conceive, and an angel appears. It says, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. And that son ends up becoming John the Baptist, who we know. And we know about John the Baptist because not just what Scripture tells us here, but what he will do through those prophecies, like I mentioned before in Isaiah, that this guy would have a really special assignment given to him by God to reveal Jesus. But unlike those other guys we've studied who kind of have a long-distance foreshadowing where we have some sort of difficulty sometimes seeing what it is, John the Baptist is literally called to go out into the wilderness where he dresses and eats like a madman and ends up leading all sorts of people towards coming back to God. And he, in fact, ends up pointing people towards Jesus the whole time, telling them, literally speaking with his mouth, that he's foreshadowing what is to come, which is even better than he. But what's amazing is God does this in so many just special ways. I mean, even from within the womb, we see that the puzzle starts to come together so people can really sense that God is coming, that his salvation has come to the people, that God has come to be with us. In verse 41, we read, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, so when these two moms get together, all of a sudden this baby leaps. And because of this, Elizabeth becomes filled with the Holy Spirit. There's something really amazing that takes place in this moment, which allows God to do something quite unique in this situation. Fourth century church leader Ambrose said it this way. He said, Elizabeth is the first to hear Mary's voice, but John is the first to be aware of his grace. So she hears with the ears of the body, but he leaps for the joy at the meaning of the mystery. She is aware of Mary's presence, but he is aware of the Lord's. But because John 
jumps for joy, filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even been conceived, there is something that occurs within Elizabeth to realize God is present here with me. And in fact, God comes and lays himself on her life and the Holy Spirit lives with her from here on forward. This is an amazing thing. I mean, a lot of us worry about sharing Jesus, don't we? But here, a baby who is yet to be born was able to share about Jesus with not a single word. He didn't even have to land on two feet to learn to speak. He didn't have to study the right language so that he could articulate good points to somebody who might be skeptical. He didn't have everything lined up and have the perfect situation where he knew he could approach his mother about Jesus and she wouldn't be offended by him. Instead, he just leaped. He jumped for joy at the presence of the Savior, the one he had come to tell people about. And because of his excitement, because of what God was doing in him, it allowed other people to see. This is the one who has come from God, the one who we're here to see. I think this is a really interesting thing that tells us a lot about how God likes to work and about what our role is within thinking about Jesus as the centerpiece of Christmas. I mean, if God is able to work through an unborn child, how much more can he work through you and me? If a miracle like that isn't the centerpiece, but Jesus is, where should our focus really be this Christmas season. This was all foretold long before John was conceived. The Holy Spirit would be present with him and he would go out into the wilderness and speak, calling people not to himself, but to God. And we read in places like Matthew chapter 3, this is what John ends up doing. That's his first sort of piece of ministry in the womb, but he ends up living his whole life until he's beheaded on fire teaching people about the way they should live in following God. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 5, we read this. People went out to him, this is to John, from Jerusalem, and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And they confessed their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus, so he's taught all this. 
He's illustrated everything. He's challenged these Pharisees who thought, well, we're sort of the centerpiece of what's happening in the religious world. These leaders who would go around and they were keeping the right rules and they were doing the teachings in such a way that people would hopefully believe and they sort of live this way and when they come to John, they say, look at us. We're Abraham's sons. We're the true ones who are in line of God's family. Well, John says, no, there's one to come. And amazingly, the one comes along. God's orchestrated all this, you see, and, and Jesus ends up coming along. And we see Jesus then comes from Galilee, and he arrives in Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized to you, and do you come to me? Which Jesus replies, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You see how God's beginning to put all the pieces together? There's John going ahead, fulfilling the mandate that was given to him by God that was prophesied about 400 years before him. And then there were these other people trying to live like they were the center of the world. And then John was able to correct them and direct them to the only one who should be seen. That's Jesus. And he ends up having this wonderful moment where at first he's like, hey, Jesus, like, I, I, I don't even... Like, I can't even, like, touch your shoes, man. Like, you are just, like, you are, you are the king. You are the one who is so high above me that I don't even deserve the position of a slave to come down and wash your feet or tie your sandals or do anything like that. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. this was prophesied about. This is told that I'm coming. We need to be, keep putting together the pieces so that people can see. See what? We'll see what happens after Jesus is baptized. As he's coming back up, we see that God, by his voice, clearly says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The pieces have fallen together because of all of the things that God has been doing for centuries nay, for thousands of years at this point, and he's bringing it all together to reveal that Jesus is the centerpiece. It was he who was fully reveal, revealing what God's plan was, and it's Jesus that ends up bringing everything together. The healing, the hope, the joy, the peace, those things that we celebrate when we look at the, the Advent candles and as we light them and do those readings, we, we talk about these things. But really the thing that brings the meaning, of course, is Jesus. We're in this season of anticipating things. But the question I have to ask is what are we really anticipating? I don't know about you, but I've been driving around and Amazoning like a madman to get all sorts of gifts to my house in time for Christmas morning. And if I'm not really careful and really attentive, 
the expectation that my mind automatically goes to is the joy that I can bring to my kids, to my family, to my wife, right? We do this. We, we try to approach Christmas season manufacturing these things that we celebrate that only Jesus can really bring. We try to make our house the most joyous place for Christmas. We try to make sure that there's going to be peace. And some of you know this. You're, you're the peacemaker in your family, and you are dreading Christmas Eve or Christmas Day because you're like, I'm going to have to be the one who pulls everyone together and guards the peace, right? There's others of us who live with this expectation that love is shown by us. Whether that's through the right number of cards going to the right people, whether that's through the gifts that we bring, whether that's through the the words that we say in the conversations, we feel like we have to manufacture a sense that everybody feels loved fully. If we're not careful, we try to be the hope of Christmas. And we do it for, the, for, for good reasons, right? Like we love our family and our friends. We want people to be at peace. We want people to know their love. We want people to experience joy. And so we have good intentions, but the problem is we forget the pieces that God's already put in place to take care of those things. We end up trying to be the puzzle maker instead of the one who simply puts pieces in place so that other people can see the one who will really give them hope, love, joy, and peace. It's why, for instance, that we have this empty candle here in the, the, in the midst of the Advent candles because we will remember and we'll light it next week on, on Sunday as we celebrate for Christmas Eve. We, this is called the Christ candle. It's the one that's biggest and burns brightest. And it reminds us that all of these other things are in place because he is at the center. Jesus isn't on the outside. He's not a corner picture piece in the puzzle that we're trying to put together this week. He's the center. And so everything else that we do, everything that we try to bring, every moment we try to have with our family, every interaction we have with a coworker this week is actually supposed to be about putting pieces from the edge inwards so that people can see the person of Jesus. When Jesus told his disciples, which includes us, what their mandate was, he didn't say, go be the hope of the world. He didn't say, go fulfill everyone's love longing. He didn't say, go be joyous, Jerry, and make everybody see you as the party that I bring. He didn't say, go be the one who brings peace to every situation that you'll come across. No, instead, what he said is, he says, I want you to go out into all the world, and I want you to teach people my ways. 
Baptize them in my name. Help them to follow me. Are we doing that this Christmas season? What's your Christmas season looking like right now? Well, if it looks like the busyness of running around, if it looks like feel that, that place where you're feeling like you have to be all those things, it's not too late to reorient how you're thinking. It's not too late to begin playing pieces which will allow people to see the only one who matters. The good news is that we have the Holy Spirit who can help us do all these things. You know, so often we look at people like John the Baptist, or at least I do, and I'm like, wow, I could never be like him. Like, I just, I just couldn't do those things on my own. And the reality is John couldn't either. We're told that before he was even born, God chose to come and live with him and empower him in everything he was doing. On his own, John wouldn't have recognized Jesus in the womb. Yeah, he might have jumped and bumped a little bit in the womb like every single baby, but there was no way he could do it in such a remarkable way that Elizabeth would recognize the very presence of God because of the thing that took place. On his own, John was just a weird dude who ate honey and locusts and dressed in camel's hair, who wandered around the wilderness, and if he went to speak to people, they would have gone, no thanks, sir, and gone the other way. But because the presence of the Lord was on him, his words were able to truly impact people's lives because it was what the Lord was doing. All John did was stand on the edge and point people towards the center in the best way that he knew how. And he trusted in the Holy Spirit to do all the anointing. That's the same thing for us. And why would we want to do anything else? Like, what else do you or I have to offer anybody? I want to share with you the words of uh, uh, an Episcopal priest named Fleming Rutledge. And she writes this about the power and the magnitude and the focus that we should have and why we can trust in these things. She writes, the witness is from God. The light is from God. The preaching is from God. All for the purpose of revealing Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The preacher is nothing. The word is everything. Jesus is everything. He comes. He comes at the end of the ages and he comes in the hearts of all human beings who even now relinquish all human claims in the face of the God who is coming in power. I don't have power like that. I can't bring those things. I recognize that just in and of myself, I'm a preacher who is worth nothing, but the word is worth everything. The light that comes and radiates from Jesus brings hope and joy and love and peace. And I invite you to consider this Christmas season to unburden yourself 
of trying to be all those things for your family and friend. And instead, look for ways this week, next Sunday and Monday as we celebrate Christmas, to point people to the one who will bring the very things they need. This is what we're expectant for. That there can be real meaning and value to Christmas far beyond any of our human capabilities. With that in mind, we're going to take communion together today. Communion is an opportunity for us to remember that the implications of Jesus' birth go far beyond the Christmas season. It goes into the whole experience of our lives. Fun fact, we're not the heroes of the story. In fact, we're often the villains. And what I mean by that is each of us knows that in trying to live our life our own way, we cause wrong and harm. We've done these things that God calls sin. We've missed the mark of living up to what only he can accomplish. And because of that, we're each deserving of death and separation from the perfect and loving God. But because of his love for you and me and people throughout all of history, past and future, God chose to give us his gift of himself. And he chose to come in the flesh and blood so that he could live in such a way to show us what it might mean to experience the fullness of all those things we celebrate at Christmas. It's because of his death on the cross and his resurrection that we don't have to pay the debt that we've incurred by our way of trying to do these things. Instead, it's by our faith in his free gift that we get to experience his love and hope and peace. So as we celebrate today with communion, I encourage you to remember the fullness of his story. That as we come to Christmas, we're celebrating a baby who gives up his own life for you and I, for a fullness of human flourishing. And so in just a moment, the band's going to come up, the communion servers are going to go to their stations, and everyone who's a follower of Jesus is invited to head to one of the tables and grab the elements. The bread, which represents Jesus' body, which was broken for us. The cup, which represents his blood poured out. And then we're to take it back to our seats, and then together we're going to celebrate what Jesus means. If you can't get up for any reason, Hannah's also going to bring the tray around. Just raise your hand, and she'd love to bring it to you. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for you. We thank you that you are the creator and sustainer of the universe. And that you are good and perfect and loving. God, I thank you that you didn't just stay at a distance from us, letting us just live in our own mess. But Lord God, that you chose to come down to earth to live amongst us, to die for us, to rise for us, to offer us a new way of living. And God, I thank you that, that that new way of living means we don't have to carry the burden of trying to be everything for everyone. Lord, we know that we cannot do it, even though we try to, even though, Lord, I know I'm guilty 
of trying to be the one who brings hope and love and joy into my family, and I'm the one who tries to sustain it, and I'm the one who tries to, 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 to just drive it all forward. Lord, I recognize that I fail at it, and I can't even bring that all to my own life. But Lord, I thank you that you have come so that you can live in me, so that you can live in every single one of us, so that we might, by your grace, begin to grow in knowing and understanding what it means to be full of hope, joy, love, and peace that only you bring. And God, I am just so sorry that it took you to the cross for us to get there, but I'm so thankful that you are willing to do it. So Lord, as we come, Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your, your pardon where things have been done under our own strength or in the wrong way. And Lord God, we thank you that we can lean into you, that we can trust you, that we can have assurance of our forgiveness because of your death and resurrection. Lord, we love you. And we recognize that it's all because of you. And so as we take these elements, Lord, would you just speak to us on a deeper level so even today we can know a little bit more of your hope, a little bit more of your love and your joy and your peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.